Shortly before 7.30 p.m. on the evening of January 17, 1950, a group of armed, masked men emerged from 165 Prince Street in Boston, Massachusetts, dragging bags containing $1,218,211.29 in cash and $1,557,183.83 in checks, money orders, and other securities. These men had just committed the crime of the century, the perfect crime, the fabulous Brinks robbery. At 7.27 p.m. as the robbers sped from the scene, a Brinks employee telephoned the Boston Police Department. Minutes later, police arrived at the Brinks building, and special agents of the FBI quickly joined in the investigation. At the outset, very few facts were available to the investigators. From interviews with the five employees whom the criminals had confronted, it was learned that between five and seven robbers had entered the building. All of them wore navy-type peacoats, gloves, and chauffeur's caps. Each robber's face was completely concealed behind a Halloween-type mask. To muffle their footsteps, one of the gang wore crepe-soled shoes, and the others wore rubbers. The robbers did little talking. They moved with a studied precision which suggested that the crime had been carefully planned and rehearsed in the preceding months. Somehow the criminals had opened at least three, and possibly four, locked doors to gain entrance to the second floor of Brinks, where the five employees were engaged in their nightly chore of checking and storing the money collected from Brinks customers that day. All five employees had been forced at gunpoint to lie face down on the floor. Their hands were tied behind their backs and adhesive tape was placed over their mouths. During this operation, one of the employees had lost his glasses, they later could not be found on the Brinks premises. As the loot was being placed in bags and stacked between the second and third doors leading to the Prince Street entrance, a buzzer sounded. The robbers removed the adhesive tape from the mouth of one employee and learned that the buzzer signified that someone wanted to enter the vault area. The person ringing the buzzer was a garage attendant. Two of the gang members moved toward the door to capture him, but, seeing the garage attendant walk away apparently unaware that the robbery was being committed, they did not pursue him. The Investigation In addition to the general descriptions received from the Brinks employees, the investigators obtained several pieces of physical evidence. There were the rope and adhesive tape used to bind and gag the employees, and a chauffeur's cap which one of the robbers had left at the crime scene. The FBI further learned that four revolvers had been taken by the gang. The descriptions and serial numbers of these weapons were carefully noted since they might prove a valuable link to the men responsible for the crime. In the hours immediately following the robbery, the underworld began to feel the heat of the investigation. Well-known Boston hoodlums were picked up and questioned by police. From Boston, the pressure quickly spread to other cities. Veteran criminals throughout the United States found their activities during mid-January the subject of official inquiry. Since Brinks was located in a heavily populated tenement section, many hours were consumed in interviews to locate persons in the neighborhood who might possess information of possible value. A systematic check of current and past Brinks employees was undertaken, Personnel of the three-story building housing the Brinks offices were questioned, inquiries were made concerning salesmen, messengers, and others who had called at Brinks and might know its physical layout as well as its operational procedures. 
An immediate effort also was made to obtain descriptive data concerning the missing cash and securities. Brink's customers were contacted for information regarding the packaging and shipping materials they used. All identifying marks placed on currency and securities by the customers were noted, and appropriate stops were placed at banking institutions across the nation. Hundreds of dead ends. The Brinks case was front page news. Even before Brinks, Incorporated offered a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the persons responsible. The case had captured the imagination of millions of Americans. Well-meaning persons throughout the country began sending the FBI tips and theories, which they hoped would assist in the investigation. For example, from a citizen in California came the suggestion that the loot might be concealed in the Atlantic Ocean near Boston. A detailed survey of the Boston waterfront previously had been made by the FBI. Former inmates of penal institutions reported conversations they had overheard while incarcerated which concerned the robbing of Brinks. Each of these leads was checked out. None proved fruitful. Many other types of information were received. A man of modest means in Bayonne, New Jersey, was reported to be spending large sums of money in nightclubs. Clubs buying new automobiles, and otherwise exhibiting newly found wealth. A thorough investigation was made concerning his whereabouts on the evening of January 17, 1950. He was not involved in the Brinks robbery. Rumors from the underworld pointed suspicion at several criminal gangs. Members of the Purple Gang of the 1930s found that there was renewed interest in their activities. Another old gang which had specialized in hijacking bootlegged whiskey in the Boston area during Prohibition became the subject of inquiries. Again, the FBI's investigation resulted merely in the elimination of more possible suspects. Many tips were received from anonymous persons. On the night of January 17, 1952, exactly two years after the crime occurred, the FBI's Boston office received an anonymous telephone call from an individual who claimed he was sending a letter identifying the Brinks robbers. Information received from this individual linked nine well-known hoodlums with the crime. After careful checking, the FBI eliminated eight of the suspects. The ninth man had long been a principal suspect. He later was to be arrested as a member of the robbery gang. Of the hundreds of New England hoodlums contacted by FBI agents in the weeks immediately following the robbery, few were willing to be interviewed. Occasionally, an offender who was facing a prison term would boast that he had hot information. You get me released and I'll solve the case in no time, these criminals would claim. One Massachusetts racketeer, a man whose moral code mirrored his long years in the underworld, confided to the agents who were interviewing him, if I knew who pulled the job. I wouldn't be talking to you now because I'd be too busy trying to figure a way to lay my hands on some of the loot. In its determination to overlook no possibility, the FBI contacted various resorts throughout the United States for information concerning persons known to possess unusually, unusually large sums of money following the robbery. Racetracks and gambling establishments also were covered in the hope of finding some of the loot in circulation. This phase of the investigation greatly disturbed many gamblers. A number of them discontinued their operations, others indicated a strong desire that the robbers be identified and apprehended. 
The massive information gathered during the early weeks of the investigation was continuously sifted. All efforts to identify the gang members through the chauffeur's hat, the rope, and the adhesive tape which had been left in Brinks proved unsuccessful. On February 5, 1950, however, a police officer in Somerville, Massachusetts, recovered one of the four revolvers which had been taken by the robbers. Investigation established that this gun, together with another rusty revolver, had been found on February 4, 1950, by a group of boys who were playing on a sandbar at the edge of the Mystic River in Somerville. Shortly after these two guns were found, one of them was placed in a trash barrel and was taken to the city dump. The other gun was picked up by the officer and identified as having been taken during the Brinks robbery. A detailed search for additional weapons was made at the Mystic River. The results were negative. Through the interviews of persons in the vicinity of the Brinks offices on the evening of January 17, 1950, the FBI learned that a 1949 green Ford stake body truck with a canvas top had been parked near the Prince Street door of Brinks at approximately the time of the robbery. From the size of the loot and the number of men involved, it was logical that the gang might have used a truck. This lead was pursued intensively. On Mar March 4, 1950, pieces of an identical truck were found at a dump in Stoughton, Massachusetts. An acetylene torch had been used to cut up the truck, and it appeared that a sledgehammer also had been used to smash many of the heavy parts, such as the motor. The truck pieces were concealed in fiber bags when found. Had the ground not been frozen, the person or persons who abandoned the bags probably would have attempted to bury them. The truck found at the dump had been reported stolen by a Ford dealer near Fenway Park in Boston on November 3, 1949. All efforts to identify the persons responsible for the theft and the persons who had cut up the truck were unsuccessful. The fiber bags used to conceal the pieces were identified as having been used as containers containers for beef bones shipped from South America to a gelatin manufacturing company in Massachusetts. Thorough inquiries were made concerning the disposition of the bags after their receipt by the Massachusetts firm. This phase of the investigation was pursued exhaustively. It proved unproductive. Nonetheless, the finding of the truck parts at Stoughton, Massachusetts, was to prove a valuable break in the investigation. Two of the participants in the Brinks robbery lived in the Stoughton area. After the truck parts were found, additional suspicion was attached to these men. Field of Suspects Narrows As the investigation developed and thousands of leads were followed to dead ends, the broad field of possible suspects gradually began to narrow. Among the early suspects was Anthony Pino, an alien who had been a principal suspect in numerous major robberies and burglaries in Massachusetts. Pino was known in the underworld as an excellent case man, and it was said that the casing of the Brinks offices bore his trademark. Pino had been questioned as to his whereabouts on the evening of January 17, 1950, and he provided a good alibi. The alibi, in fact, was almost too good. Pino had been at his home in the Roxbury section of Boston until approximately 7 p.m., then he walked to the nearby liquor store of Joseph McGinnis. Subsequently, he engaged in a conversation with McGinnis and a Boston police officer. The officer verified the meeting. The alibi was strong, but not conclusive. 
The police officer said he had been talking to McGinnis first, and Pino arrived later to join them. The trip from the liquor store in Roxbury to the Brinks offices could be made in about 15 minutes. Pino could have been at McGinnis' liquor store shortly after 7.30 p.m. on January 17, 1950, and still have participated in the robbery. And what of McGinnis himself? Commonly regarded as a dominant figure in the Boston underworld, McGinnis previously had been convicted of robbery and narcotics violations. Underworld sources described him as fully capable of planning and executing the Brinks robbery. He, too, had left his home shortly before 7 p.m. on the night of the robbery and met the Boston police officer soon thereafter. If local hoodlums were involved, it was difficult to believe that McGinnis could be as ignorant of the crime as he claimed. Neither Pino nor McGinnis was known to be the type of hoodlum who would undertake so potentially dangerous a crime without the best strong-arm support available. Two of the prime suspects whose nerve and gun-handling experience suited them for the Brinks robbery were Joseph James O'Keefe and Stanley Albert Guschiora. O'Keefe and Guschiora reportedly had worked together on a number of occasions. Both had served prison sentences, and both were well-known to underworld figures on the East Coast. O'Keefe's reputation for nerve was legend. Reports had been received alleging that he had held up several gamblers in the Boston area and had been involved in shakedowns of bookies. Like Guschiora, O'Keefe was known to have associated with Pino prior to the Brinks robbery. Both of these strong-arm suspects had been questioned by Boston authorities following the robbery. Neither had too convincing an alibi. O'Keefe claimed that he left his hotel room in Boston at approximately 7 p.m. on January 17, 1950. Following the robbery, authorities attempted unsuccessfully to locate him at the hotel. His explanation, he had been drinking at a bar in Boston. Guschiora also claimed to have been drinking that evening. The families of O'Keefe and Guschiora resided in the vicinity of Stoughton, Massachusetts. When the pieces of the 1949 Green Ford stake body truck were found at the dump in Stoughton on March 4, 1950, additional emphasis was placed on the investi investigations concerning them. Local officers searched their homes, but no evidence linking them with the truck or the robbery was found. In April 1950, the FBI received information indicating that part of the Brinks loot was hidden in the home of a relative of O'Keefe in Boston. A federal search warrant was obtained, and the home was searched by agents on April 27, 1950. Several hundred dollars were found hidden in the house, but could not be identified as part of the loot. On June 2, 1950, O'Keefe and Guschiora left Boston by automobile for the alleged purpose of visiting the grave of Guschiora's brother in Missouri. Apparently, they had planned a leisurely trip with an abundance of extracurricular activities. On June 12, 1950, they were arrested at Tawanda, Pennsylvania, and guns and clothing, which were the loot from burglaries at Kane and Cowdersport, Pennsylvania, were found in their possession. Following their arrests, a former bondsman in Boston made frequent trips to Tawanda in an unsuccessful effort to secure their release on bail. On September 8, 1950, O'Keefe was sentenced to three years in the Bradford County Jail at Tawanda, and fined $3,000 for violation of the Uniform Firearms Act. Although Guschiora was acquitted of the charges against him in Tawanda, 
He was removed to McKean County, Pennsylvania, to stand trial for burglary, larceny, and receiving stolen goods. On October 11, 1950, Guschiora was sentenced to serve from 5 to 20 years in the Western Pennsylvania Penitentiary at Pittsburgh. Even after these convictions, O'Keefe and Guschiora continued to seek their release. Between 1950 and 1954, the underworld occasionally rumbled with rumors that pressure was being exerted upon Boston hoodlums to contribute money for these criminals' legal fight against the charges in Pennsylvania. The names of Pino, McGinnis, Adolph Jazz Maffey, and Henry Baker were frequently mentioned in these rumors, and it was said that they had been with O'Keefe on the big job. Despite, despite the lack of evidence and witnesses upon which court proceedings could be based, as the investigation progressed there was little doubt that O'Keefe had been one of the central figures in the Brinks robbery. Pino also was linked with the robbery, and there was every reason to suspect that O'Keefe felt Pino was turning his back on him now that O'Keefe was in jail. Both O'Keefe and Guschiora had been interviewed on several occasions concerning the Brinks robbery, but they had claimed complete ignorance. In the hope that a wide breach might have developed between the two criminals who were in jail in Pennsylvania and the gang members who were enjoying the luxuries of a free life in Massachusetts, FBI agents again visited Guschiora and O'Keefe. Even in their jail cells, however, they showed no respect for law enforcement. In pursuing the underworld rumors concerning the principal suspects in the Brinks case, the FBI succeeded in identifying more probable members of the gang. There was Adolph Jazz Maffey, one of the hoodlums who allegedly was being pressured to contribute money for the legal battle of O'Keefe and Guschiora against Pennsylvania authorities. He had been questioned concerning his whereabouts on January 17, 1950, and was unable to provide any specific account of where he had been. Been. Henry Baker, another veteran criminal, who was rumored to be kicking into the Pennsylvania defense phone,